Hello, NAFI instructors. This is John Niehaus for the National Association of Flight Instructors, welcoming you to another episode of More Right Rudder Podcast. Now, this edition is a follow-up on the last one that we ran. Uh, last week was uh, Joey Johnson and Brian Schiff talking about Power Off 180s. Um, now, we did a part two to this with uh, Tom Turner, Executive Director of the American Bonanza Society, their Air Safety Foundation, and uh, Brian, again, Brian Schiff. And uh, they just went into further discussion on the maneuver itself and uh, about what it looks like in the ACS and, and some other really cool things, kind of breaking down the maneuver uh, for instructors and, and even students who might be interested in, in learning a little bit more about uh, about the maneuver. So it's really, really good stuff, really good material. And uh, before we get to that, I just wanted to once again mention that uh, NAFI is going to Sun and Fun this year. Um, and uh, that is thanks to our partnership with Glime Aviation. Um, so we're going to be right next to Glime, and, uh, and our booth will be Charlie 41, Hangar C, booth 41. And uh, once again, we want to thank Glime for their generous support of, of NAFI and um, our members. And uh, if you don't already know, they also do provide a discount um, to NAFI members. And uh, all you need to do is log into nafinet.org, and you can get all the information on the uh, the NAFI discount to climb. So thanks again for that. Um, we also have, on April 21st, we have our next Mentor Live. That's 8 p.m. April 21st, Eastern Time. Um, and uh, we're excited to present the ABCs of FAA Enforcement Actions. Now, this is presented by Edward Page. Um, who's a double I, AGI, IGI, and a attorney. So uh, we're looking forward to that. And remember, anybody can join that. You can get information on our website, nafinet.org. So um, without further ado, we'll go ahead and get to uh, the NAFI Briefing Room episode of Power Off 180's Part 2. Enjoy. This is Brian Schiff, and I'd like to welcome you to another edition of the NAFI Briefing Room, where we've got Tom Turner, the Executive Director of the American Bonanza Society Air Safety Foundation. And we're going to talk about a continuation discussion of the Power Off 180 that I had with Joey Johnson a couple weeks ago. Tom, welcome. Thanks for joining us. Thanks a lot, Brian. Uh, thanks for having me here. You're right. I watched that uh, your earlier edition with Joey uh, with great interest because... I don't do a lot of uh, certificate and ratings training. However, I do type-specific pilot training in beach airplanes. And one of the uh, items that we've talked among our instructors about introducing or reintroducing to our syllabus is the power off, power off 180 accuracy approach and landing. So suddenly your, uh, your seminar came up and I thought, well, this is, this is gonna be excellent information for me right now. And that led to a bunch of questions that I had and we shared together about um, how do I look at this from the instructor standpoint? How do I get better at teaching the Power Off 180? So that's what I'd like to talk to you about today. Right, and that's great. We had that discussion from a DPE's perspective and now I think we can add a lot to that from an instructor's point of view. He told us basically where students are failing on that and that it is one of the most commonly failed maneuvers. But I think you bring another perspective that's very important 
and that is advanced training for people of specific airplanes or bonanzas or, or barons in that case, uh, where it's not just to pass the, the check ride, but this is kind of like, hey, how do I set this thing down in a field if I actually had a real emergency uh, with no power? And, and this is a good maneuver to train, to practice and be familiar with. So there's a lot of advice, not only for passing the check ride, but for uh, practicing for a, a, a hopefully unlikely emergency. Yeah, and uh, we, we actually, in our uh, Beechcraft Pilot Proficiency Program, we have a demonstration we do with our, our customers uh, of uh, power off uh, descent, a spiral down over the airport. Now we don't do the commercial steep spiral thing. We do a more a gradual spiral down, but the entire purpose of this spiral is to teach them to get into position opposite their intended touchdown spot at an altitude where they can continue in what is essentially the power off 180 maneuver to a touchdown. So um, my interest in learning more about this is how do we get better? I, I personally, and how do we collectively get better at teaching this in the context of an engine failure landing? Exactly. And I think that's a good point is to get to that position. Uh, I think referred to as the key position where you're down when to be in the numbers at a certain altitude. And then you just perform the maneuver that you've trained for, the, <clears throat> the one that we're discussing right now. Yeah. And so you just get to that point by circling and ending up at that key position yeah. at a certain altitude. And then you move on, go on from there and perform the maneuver that we're talking about. This and then all it is is a power off 180. One of the things that I like to do to have my students prepare for that maneuver for the check right and in real life is make that their default approach procedure. If there's no traffic in your way. So if traffic permits and, and you're in an aircraft where you're not babying your engine because it's a turbo, make it a default. And most trainers are, just make a power off glide from the key position, your normal approach procedure. If you have to extend downwind, well, that's different. Uh, unravel the pattern to, to visualize that key position at a mile and a half or wherever it might be, and then start the maneuver from that point. And then it becomes kind of an energy management thing. Yeah, and, and I remember doing this, well, I barely remember because it's been 32 years, but I remember doing this in a 182RG back when I was working on a commercial in my CFI. Uh, and I don't remember a lot of the specifics, but I, I have played around with it in a Beach Bonanza recently and uh, found that um, the concept is sound. Uh, practice this regularly. Yeah, But in, in practice, it doesn't work out quite so well in this airplane because, among other things, uh, if you are at normal traffic pattern height and even a little tight on, on a downwind approach, um, if you extend the landing gear at least, and we can talk about that later if you want, that was one of my questions, uh, there's no way that you can glide from the high key position and make it to the runway. Uh, in a training airplane, and especially now since uh, with the changes of the rules about complex aircraft, uh, most pilots will probably be taking their practical test in a fixed gear airplane. Uh, and in some cases, you know, Diamonds and Cirrus is an airplane that has a, a very, very good glide ratio compared to others. It, it might be a lot easier, but uh, uh, this thing, uh, when you slow it to, you know, you get it on glide speed with the power off and the gear down, even with the flaps up, it's a sinker. You and Joey talked about this in the earlier briefing room item, and actually the uh, the depiction in the uh, airplane flying handbook of the procedure, the diagram 
shows the pattern to be essentially a squared off normal VFR traffic pattern. And uh, that doesn't work in, in the airplanes I fly. Right. Uh, if, if I don't make a essentially continuous curving turn at best glide speed, and we'll come back to altitude in a minute, um, if I don't make a continuous curving turn, I cannot make it. And if I were to try to extend out onto a normal pattern like this, it just wouldn't work. Um, right. I, I can't put out any flaps at all until I'm on very short final. Uh, but uh, let me I'll tell you a little bit because I, after viewing your program, I took the plane up and experimented a little bit. Sure. It inspired me to go out and let's, let's try this. Let's practice this. So the first thing I did was I flew a normal VFR traffic pattern. I fly pretty tight patterns anyhow compared to a lot of folks. But I flew a normal VFR traffic pattern. And coincidentally, the way we fly that, uh, it has us just about at best glide speed for the aircraft. And I did it at normal traffic pattern height. So I pulled the throttle all the way back to idle, the gear horns going beep, beep, beep. So I extended the landing gear, because I don't want to forget that, and <clears throat> found that <clears throat> um, I'm immediately adding about 500 foot per minute to the glide ratio of the aircraft because of the gear extension. And it took a, a, a very essentially continuous, nearly steep bank turn to be able to turn and align with the runway. And I wasn't going to make it. There was, and I tried it twice that way. There was no way I could do it. Uh, I tried it then from, uh, instead of a thousand feet up, I tried it from 1300 feet up and it's still really sketchy. I found to be consistent with it. I had to start the maneuver 1500 feet above ground level, which is exactly what we teach in our BPPP system at the end of that spiral down over the airport to be at high key at 1500 feet. So that, that works in these airplanes. I guess my point for this is that uh, anyone who's instructing this maneuver uh, will need to you know, be a little bit flexible with the selection of, of altitude right. uh, based on that specific airplane's characteristics. And also, um, um, Probably, though, actually, the way that, that I teach it, the way we teach it, uh, that spiral maneuver, I tell people, think of it as being a turn around a point with that point being your intended touchdown spot. Oh, that's a good one. I like that. You also mentioned the landing gear, and I noticed that's <clears throat> excuse me, a bit of a question that other people have answered. So how do you mitigate uh, not forgetting to put the gear down if you want to delay that? Because I don't think I'd want to put it down right away. When I do these and teach these maneuvers, the power off 180, it's typically managing your drag. You don't have an engine, so we have to increase drag at a certain rate. So when do you put the gear down and how do you mitigate not forgetting? Yeah, yeah. well, you know, I did do that a while back. Um, I was practicing this several months ago as well. And uh, I tried it one time. So, all right, well, I'm gonna see I, what the characteristics are like if I leave the gear up until short final. The nice thing is that the airplanes I'm flying uh, has an electric gear system and the gear goes down in about four and a half seconds. So it's and it's it. So it goes down yeah. very rapidly. <clears throat> yeah. uh, so it's something you can do right away. But what I, what I did uh, now, as an aside, you may know that I've spent a good portion of my 30 year career as a flight instructor studying the problem of gear up landings. <laughs> oh, I don't think I knew that. 
Yeah, I've done quite a bit of research on that, written quite a bit about them, uh, not just in the types of airplanes I fly, but all retractable gear piston airplanes. And there are some very definite patterns that ensue. One of them is that approximately half of all reported gear up landings happen during the conduct of dual flight instruction. Wow. Uh, and I think that's because by nature, we instructors provide unusual and distracting scenarios to our students. That's a good Something point. different from what is normal. Yeah. So I was thinking, how exactly, how do I mitigate that? And what I did, flying solo in this airplane, is when I pulled the power and began my, uh, my turn around a landing point, basically, I was shouting out loud to myself, the gear is still up, the gear is still up, <laughs> all of the way around. And I decided that, yeah, I could probably do it consistently from pattern height that way if I wanted to, but knowing the history and not wanting to completely fail one of my students one day by us both forgetting it, uh, I'd rather myself practice it from a higher altitude with the gear out, with the gear yeah. down. Yeah, that makes sense. And I usually do something like if my hand is on the throttle, I'll put a finger out. And that's like tying a ribbon around my finger or something. Or if, <laughs> if there are two things I need to do before landing and they're holding off, I'll have two All fingers. Right, and but sometimes it'll be on short final. Why is my finger out again? Oh, the gear. <laughs> oh, yeah, exactly. The good news yeah. is that at idle power, most retractable gear airplanes will have a gear warning horn blaring at you. Beep, beep, beep. The bad yeah. news is we tend to tune it out. Yeah, we, that distraction usually makes us forget the gear. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Yeah. And the other thing that, you know, we can use to manage is, and I think very important that a lot of people don't realize is the propeller RPM yes. in a complex airplane. Like you said, though, many applicants for the commercial are no longer doing this, doing their check rides in a complex airplane because they don't have to. Right. Uh, but the maneuver still should be taught in the event that you have to make an emergency landing in such an airplane. So it's a very important consideration. What do you do? What do you teach students to do with the propeller control in such a maneuver? Well, again, from a risk management uh, standpoint, we generally just leave the propeller uh, um, in our glide position and uh, excuse me, in our forward position during the glide. Now, we do that for a couple of different reasons, um, but primarily it's because um, we want to have the power immediately available should we have to go around out of the maneuver. Right. Uh, now, I know a number of instructors who have taught at Kansas State University, and for many years they used Bonanzas as their complex trainers, and I have um, uh, some of their training materials, and they all, uh, what, what they say in their program was they would start it from traffic pattern height, but put the gear down right away and go ahead and pull the prop to the low RPM position. Um, there's nothing really, yeah, there's nothing really wrong with that. Uh, it's really disconcerting for an airplane owner to suddenly have their propeller in the low RPM position when they're very close to the ground. And True. so <clears throat> I would rather start it at 1,500 feet with the gear down and the prop forward for a practice maneuver. Yeah. And it also coincides precisely with what we teach for the, you know, the spiral down from altitude engine out into the okay. high key position. Uh, I personally do that so that we've got the gear down because of the distraction value and we've got the propeller fully forward so that we essentially, assuming that we put the mixture forward 
as appropriate for the landing. Um, uh, we have essentially restored single power lever control to this aircraft. And all we have to do is push the black throttle, in, the right. black handle in to make it go if right. we have to. I like, so that's how I mitigate I it. I like the idea of doing that as well, but for a little bit different reason. I like, I, you know, I do mostly complex Cessnas, so 210s and 182s or Cutlass RGs, and the gear doesn't make that big a difference. It's not worth learning how to do it to be flying a pattern with the gear down and, and, and adding that degree of risk. I think getting the gear down is important. But as far as the propeller control goes, I like to demonstrate the almost feeling of thrust that uh, a pilot will feel when you pull that propeller back to a low RPM, but also we have a lot of drag we can add to this whole thing. We can add flaps, we can slip, we can do all kinds of adding of drag, but there's right. one thing you can keep in your hip pocket is that propeller as yes. a means of, okay, I'm gonna take away some drag or in effect add thrust. And, uh -huh. and that's the only way we can correct in that direction. So if you see yourself unusually low, you're not gonna make it, that's a kind of a, like a, uh, a feather in your, an arrow in your quiver that you can use. We, we actually demonstrate that as well uh, up at higher altitude usually, although uh, as the situation arises, we do do that. Uh, I do do that anyhow, uh, close to the ground in what is essentially the power off 180 maneuver. Um, using it, the way I describe it is use it as a speed brake, just like you use speed brakes at a sailplane. Sure. Push the handle in and it slows down, pull the handle back and it speeds up or right. really more appropriately, it adds drag, reduces drag. Right. And a I lot of, oh, go ahead. Yeah, when I got my glider reading, they showed us how to modulate, yeah. taught how to modulate the speed brake. So when you start your descent from the key position, you put it at 50%. You're going to have it there no matter what. And then yeah. you just use it like a throttle. If you're too low and you need to add power, well, you push forward and that stows the speed brakes. Yeah. If you're too high and you need to reduce power, you kind of pretend it's a throttle, pull back on it, and that extends the speed brakes and adds more drag, but you're modulating that. I also like to do the same thing with a slip just enter a real mild slip and then modulate it from there. If you are too low, come out of the slip a little yes. bit. If you're too high, increase the slip. Uh, I had a Cessna 120 for a long time. I, I'm, I'm a slipper. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I like the slip as well. Uh, do you play around in the sailplane, especially to, you, you play around with uh, changes in indicated airspeed during the maneuver to modulate altitude? I do, and I think it's important to understand that, you know, we, we teach to do this at best glide speed. Uh -huh. That's going to get you as far as you can. So, yeah, if you need to get down, you can go slower or faster. Either is theoretically going to change your drag, right? And right. Exactly. Give you a steeper glide path. The caution here is that you don't want to get to the threshold at VREF plus 20 or 30 and then be floating forever because right. the idea of the power off accuracy landing is to touch down at a certain point or within two or is it 200 feet of that point. So yeah. you don't want to be too hot. Uh, exactly. Do you use that? different airspeeds? Would it work better in this maneuver instead of flying at best glide to fly an even tighter turn and fly it at the least rate of descent and come down at the steeper angle but without the forward distance? And I learned very rapidly that no, you need distance because there's a lot of, even in a continuous turn, you cover a lot of uh, territory making that, that arc back to the runway. So that didn't work. Uh, yeah. But we do, I do show and we do show that, okay, you're a little higher than you want to be. Well, slow it down just to, you know, slow it down 10 knots and you'll come down at a slightly steeper angle. And as soon as you get back to where you want to be, put it back to where you, the pitch attitude you want and get your speed back. 
Yeah, great advice. And I, I always teach as a matter of habit, come in high, you've got plenty of ways to yes. add drag and get down. And, and you can't be afraid of the slip. Uh, pilots need to be able to, to do the forward slip and not be uh, afraid of that because it's an easy way to, to make your approach steeper. And yeah. if, you're, if you're doing a normal light slip, you come out of it, that adds a little bit of added glide performance as well. You mentioned the continuous radius to final. I think uh, UND or Embry-Riddle, yeah. some of the colleges in the yeah, FAA they, were looking at doing that and implementing it, which makes great sense. Uh, and you just change your radius of turn for the energy you need to dissipate, which is actually, I believe, how this, the space shuttle orbiter comes back down, goes to a certain place on final, and the computer calculates a cone. So the higher it is, the larger the radius and ah. the ground to cover, which is a concept that can work. Um, yeah. But for students in this scenario, doing the power off 180, I do the, have them roll out on a base and immediately ask, how do I look? And now you've got some geometry to play with. And if you look really high, you can angle out to a longer final. And if you look really low, you can angle in. You can go straight for the numbers if you have to, but you can modulate that base leg, the angle of the base leg to accommodate for your altitude. That, that makes sense. And one of the other mitigations I'm always concerned about is the fact that uh, AOPA's data tell us, and you know, it's based on NTSB data, that the vast majority of mid-air collisions occur within 400 feet of the ground on final approach. So if I'm in a continual turning, uh, first off, if I'm doing this maneuver, I have to be cautious that all of my attention is looking out the side window, trying to keep that spot in the runway inside. Yeah. And secondly, if in a low-wing airplane I'm in a left-hand turn, well, it could have work in a right-hand turn either. If I'm a continuous turn to the runway, I am with my wing blocking my vision of somebody coming in on a longer final, a more conventional final approach. Yeah. So I do actually level the wings momentarily to clear the area. And that's, I like, I like your phrase of how does it look? I'm going to incorporate that. Yeah, uh, all my students here loud. Even the, my students who are airline pilots now, when they turn base on a visual approach <laughs> in their airliners, they still hear me asking, how do you look? Yeah. That question always on base leg is a good one to ask, and then you can make uh, changes but, there. But I really like bringing in the traffic collision avoidance. That's very important and, and something that I believe that I've neglected in this because the pilot gets focused and tunnel visioned on the task at hand and may forget to look for traffic. Great. Uh, Brian, it sounds like you've done this a lot more recently than I have. Um, what are some of the most common mistakes you see and, and how can I fix it when I mess up? Well, I think um, I am going to defer to the, uh, the airplane flying handbook and I'll, I'll share this here. The common mistakes that I'm seeing are pretty much the same thing that are in the airplane flying handbook. And these are the common errors, uh, and, which is a great change that they've made to this book is that in a lot of the maneuvers, they show right. the common errors, which are yeah, great to study. Um, but the downward leg being too far from the runway or landing area. And I think right. this, again, these habits should be instilled uh, for those instructors who are watching this. Instill these habits in your, in your students as soon as you can as a primary part of their flight training to keep them close enough to the runway uh, to consider that if the engine fails, you can glide. So keep the downwind kind of close to the runway and do it the same way every time. An mm -hmm. uh, overextension of the downwind leg resulting from a tailwind. We always land into the wind, right? So it stands to reason we're going to have a tailwind on the downwind, which is, I guess, why they named it that. <laughs> so I see students going too far downwind. And then once you get too far away, you can't do anything about it. It's over. 
uh, again, coming in high is the way to go uh, on, on this maneuver. It's easier to try to get down. There are more tools to implement than mm -hmm. there are to try to e extend your glide. Then, of course, the inadequate uh, compensation for wind drift on the base leg. If you have a quartering crosswind uh, on your to the runway for landing, uh, you could have a tailwind or a headwind on base, and that is something I don't see students compensating for, and they really need to. You need to think, okay, the, the wind is from my tail on this crosswind, so I need to turn earlier, or just be thinking about it and know how you're going to compensate for that. Exactly. And then the other thing, the next is skidding turns to increase gliding distance. I will see students, and this is very dangerous, you know, they got a tailwind on base, they didn't over, they didn't compensate for it, and they're gonna overshoot the final. And this is where it's tempting to be, well, I, if I bank too much, I'm gonna lose all that glide performance. So instead yeah. of banking, I'm gonna feed in that rudder to point myself to the runway. And now you've got a skidding turn, which as we know, is a recipe for disaster. All right. Um, and a, in a lot of aircraft, uh, the best glide speed is very close to um, are, are fairly close to a stalling speed in the airplane too. So, you know, a lot of, a lot of training. Especially, yeah, in a steep turn. Much lower speed than, than maybe what I'm used to. Exactly, exactly. So I think if you're going to make a steeper turn, I would rather see a student or a pilot in that matter make a, a steeper turn, but maybe not load the nose. So don't pull back in the turn, let the nose drop and keep it at a 1G turn and you're not going to increase the stall speed so much. I would much rather see a 1G steep turn descending than I would speeding in that rudder and skidding around the final. Absolutely. Yeah, and then the landing gear, failure to lower landing gear and retractable gear airplanes, uh, that's another common error and we talked about that and some ways to mitigate that. Yeah. And then attempting to stretch the glide in an undershoot and it's human nature to stretch a glide by pulling back. Yeah. And you have got to be very disciplined about that best glide speed and that can vary for the airplane you're in as you know, in the Bonanzas and the, and the, and the Barons and the Kinger, for that matter, you're going to have a much different glide speed depending on the weight of the aircraft. Even the 210 has a wide range yes. of glide speeds. So know the best glide speed for your weight anytime you're flying the airplane, whether you're doing these maneuvers or not. That's right. The published speeds are, are at maximum gross weight, and then they decrease from there. Exactly. And that's important for instructors to point out. And then premature flap extension and landing gear extension. We talked about the gear. I think Premature on that is not a bad thing, but flaps is. And, and I'm often asked, and I'd like your take on this, if I put too much flaps in and I see I'm not going to make it, can I retract the flaps? You can. Uh, I don't know that it would respond quickly enough that it would solve your problem. Um, remember, the reason we have flaps in an airplane in the first place is so that we can descend at a steeper angle. And they were a, arguably an improvement over having to slip the airplane. And uh, we don't want to slip it. We don't want to steepen the angle. So as this list suggests, we want to wait until we are really essentially almost over our, our landing surface before we extend any flaps, unless you find yourself very, very high out, out there. I would rather uh, use your, your uh, what seems to be your preferred technique. I would rather use a slip uh, to correct for being high on glide path on final in this maneuver, then I would put out flaps. I'd be really inclined and in much of my practice, I've, I've not used any flaps at all and made a zero flap landing out of it. I agree, I think that's perfectly fine. The flaps are uh, something to keep in your hip pocket for when you screw up and you're too high. 
and plan the zero flap landing. I think I'm, there's nothing wrong with that. Yeah, I'm looking at the ACS for this maneuver and there's there's no statement about uh, use of flaps or requirement of using flaps other than in the context of uh, risk mitigation to determine whether you should be using that at all. Right, and I just put it on the screen. Oh, and, there we go, good. Yeah, and the important part is to plan a, plan a flight path and use the flaps as a tool. Use them at the end to get down if you need it. If you don't, uh, then don't put them down. The first notch of flaps usually is mostly lift, and I really don't have a problem with that going on earlier on, but the later flaps selections I think should be delayed because they're more drag than than lift. And when, and you, do, that, when you do retract them, you're going to initially lose enough lift. You better have enough altitude to play with that you're going to have to initially. Yeah, that's right. Loss. You so. you might yeah that's right. You you might have a steady state of improved glide performance, but you're going to have a transitory phase where there may be even worse performance and, and until it enters that steady state. And you get that sinker, but also that transitory phase of extension can also help you at the last minute if you're going to fall short of your mark. You can just yeah, there you go. Lapse down there and get a little lift and get, get a little buoy out of it. Yeah. Yeah. So I've seen that also. Um, but uh, in any event, that's, that's the thing is, is, is a, while we're looking at this, it's the proper pitch attitudes. In other words, they don't want you touching down on your nose first in a tricycle right. aircraft. Mm -hmm. uh, you want to, to touch down on your mains in the normal landing attitude within 200 feet or beyond the specified point. So I think of importance is to look at, okay, I use a precision runway to, to try and teach this. And I use these, the touchdown markers or the thick white ones that are a thousand feet down. Typically, if you find an airport with the precision markings like this, there's not a lot of aircraft in the pattern there. And I've found that you can typically get a lot, of, a lot of pattern work done there in between IFR arrivals, that is. And if you can find a precision runway to use, uh, I tell my students to use the beginning of that touchdown zone marker, which is the second one down the runway. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think, um, I have that, those touchdown zone markers themselves are 150 feet long. Right. So if you aim for the beginning of that paint and don't touch down before it, but touch and don't touch down after the end of the paint, you're giving a 150 foot window. And if you can do that, then you certainly can make the 200 foot window. Absolutely. So I'd like to use these markings for training uh, in, in this maneuver for the check ride. And I do as well. I, I uh, we do have around here, we have several non-towered airports that, have precision uh, approaches and, and markings. And so that's really handy to be able to do that as well. Yeah, and, and that's good advice. Is the purpose of this maneuver, one, to teach engine failures in the traffic pattern, two, to teach it the way I do, which is the conclusion of an engine failure at altitude and setting yourself up for a, uh, an engine out landing, or three, philosophically, is it, and I, I sometimes jokingly refer to these as check ride circus tricks, is it a maneuver we learn for the purpose of being able to demonstrate our ability to perform that maneuver? Uh, and if, if it is seen by an examiner or an instructor as a, a, a maneuver in its own right, a check ride circus trick, something we learned to show that we know how to do that thing, then you could probably more be, uh, you could argue either way on what altitude you choose. If the philos if philosophically 
and I'm going to ask your opinion on this in a second. If philosophically this was this all goes back to teaching engine failures in the traffic pattern, then I need to do it differently because I'm not in a traffic pattern when I'm teaching this maneuver. So what do you, do, philosophically, what do you think we're doing here? Philosophically, I think that it's not so much, and I know what you're talking about, uh, check ride circus tricks. And I think I would probably refer to the Chandel and the Lazy Eight a little bit more about that. And it's checking, <laughs> you know, how well you can divide your attention. Oh and yeah. All that. Oh, there, are, there are valid reasons for it, but yes. Yeah, absolutely. But this maneuver in particular, I think of the first two that you mentioned, one is to handle an engine failure in the pattern, but more importantly, I think, and more commonly, what are the odds your engine's gonna fail right down when it beam the numbers? Okay. I think more, more commonly, you're gonna be cruising somewhere, something happens, you lose your engine, and you wanna to get to that key position and know that, hey, there's a field. I know that I can get to the, I mean, yes, I can get to that field, and gliding to that field is just half the battle. Right. Probably less than half the battle. The, the big part of that battle is doing this maneuver right here, getting to a position where you know you can not only uh, turn and, and fly a pattern and land in that field, but to touch down in the beginning part of that field so as to roll out. It's no good if you make it to the field and then touch down at the end of it right. and then go into the wall. Like if you're trying to land in a football field and that's all you've got around, you don't want to touch down in your end zone. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. You want to touch down at the beginning. That's right. And I think this maneuver really prepares a pilot for knowing the airplane well enough mm -hmm. to do such a thing. And, and that's why I think it should be practiced quite a bit. And we do the engine failures at altitudes. We, we spring these on our students all the time. And then when they get to this key position, now this is, okay, we want to see if you would have made it. We, are, is your approach such that you would touch down in the early parts of that field that you chose? And did you modify it? And did you plan for that? So I think demonstrating that to an examiner on a check ride is showing that if I lose an engine at altitude, I can be in command of this airplane enough to get it, not only get it to the field, but to fly a pattern and land without blowing the whole thing after that. Okay, great. Yeah, well, I agree with you. That's the way I look at it. So I, I, we're, we're in, uh, in agreement here. Uh, something I've said for a very long time, uh, engine failures don't kill pilots, poorly planned glides or just bad luck kill pilots. Right. You know, sometimes you just have no options. But, but more often than not, it's a poorly planned glide. And at least in the beach piston airplanes that I've studied for 30 years now, um, very, very commonly, and I see it in other makes and models as well, very, very commonly when there's been an engine failure accident, the airplane ends up almost making it to a good touchdown zone, or as you said, overshooting it and going into the trees or something at the far end. Yeah. So practicing this maneuver, the way I look at it anyhow, practicing this maneuver in the context of the final 1500 feet of an engine failure in flight makes a lot of sense. Um, right. There are other reasons to do it. There are check ride reasons to do it. There are uh, practice. I mean, if you can do this maneuver, if you can get a student pilot to do this even before a private exam, at least introduce this concept, uh, I think that you would make short field landings a lot easier. Uh, this would be Absolutely. a little harder than a short field landing. So you take them a little beyond that and you back up a little bit. Now you've got the power to play with. Let's make a short field landing. Yeah. Well, I got news for you. Every one of my students pre-solo can do this maneuver. Cool. Because right. it's power off of being the numbers, and that's how that's the law of primacy. That's the first thing they teach. It's that's, not a stay. It, 
it's not a stabilized approach. So anyway, well, I think we had a good talk, good discussion yeah, this, on this. Anything else this, you want to add? No, this this has been fantastic, Brian. Thank you. It's given given me a lot to work with because I've been out of the practice of teaching commercial pilot uh, applicants for far too many years. And um, now that I'm thinking about doing it again, uh, your earlier uh, presentation with, with uh, Mr. Johnson, and now this discussion here has really given me a lot to work with. So uh, I really appreciate it. Great. I and it's been good for me as well. As when instructors get together and talk, I think it, it's very valuable for both the instructors. And I hope that anybody watching this gets something out of it as well. And if there's anything to contribute, please feel free to mark in the comments uh, so that anybody else who watches this can, can read your comments on that as well. So again, Tom, thanks for uh, joining. Appreciate it. Thanks a lot, Brian. All right. Take care. It's John Niehaus here again. Uh, just wanted to say thanks for listening. Uh, we really appreciate it. And uh, a little bit of housekeeping here. We wanted to let you know that uh, for a lot of these uh, podcast episodes, we actually have videos that are associated with them. Um, and those can be found on our YouTube page. If you just look up the National Association of Flight Instructors on YouTube, you can actually see a lot of these things um, and so much more. Um, so it's it's kind of a great way to stay connected. You can also go to our social media pages. We have uh, groups and pages, um, both on Facebook and LinkedIn. Uh, we have a Twitter handle, Naffy Instructors. Um, and we're even on Instagram. So if you want to see some cool stuff, communicate with us, send us messages, send us topic ideas, anything you like. Um, we're always interested in, in hearing what you have to say. And, and the really cool thing is we try to use that to promote what our instructors and members are doing. So if you've done something cool, if, if you want to share it with us, we'd love to share it with the world. Um, and so uh, if you're not a member, by all means, you can join up at www.nafinet.org. Um, we welcome pretty much anybody who has uh, enthusiasm for aviation education and, and flight instruction. So you don't have to be a flight instructor, um, but it's also really cool if you are. So thank you so much and have a great day.